I am master of my own body. I have the absolute disposal of myself. I do what I please. I am the first and last of my nation. I fear no man and I depend only upon the great spirit. Whereas your body as well as your soul are doomed to a dependence upon your great captain, the king. Your viceroy disposes of you. You had not the liberty of doing what you had a mind to. That was Candy Rung, 17th century Huron chief and arguably an enlightenment philosopher. This is the Illegitimate Scholar podcast, where we think that our culture is in crisis and we don't trust woke universities to explain how and why. In this podcast, you'll hear stories about history, anthropology, culture, and geopolitics that'll make you rethink what you learned in school. I'm Sam, and I quit teaching history in a traditional sense because I loved the content, but I hated the limitations on how and what I could teach. So today, how did Native American philosophers influence the ideas of the Enlightenment and the Founding Fathers? Academia often just chooses evidence to ignore if that evidence is inconvenient to them. This episode and all my episodes are about things that academia ignores. Wouldn't it make sense that living next to Native Americans for hundreds of years, the Europeans would have been influenced by them? Today, I'm gonna to share evidence with you that the Native Americans did influence the Europeans. And at the end, I'm gonna explain why the Native Americans of the East Coast were specifically situated to have this philosophy based on their government system. Thanks for listening and please join my Discord. Link is below for all the sources, graphics, and discussion of this podcast. So Native Americans had a lot of influence on the founding documents and the philosophies of the United States and uh, American culture, you know, which the founding documents of the U.S. are American culture. So the Native Americans had a profound effect on American culture and probably in more ways than you think. To start, I'm going to go through a, a quick round of influences that we have in, uh, in, in some of the documents. The Haudenosaunee people um, have this specific form of government called the Great Law of Peace. And I'm going to go through the specifics of the Great Law of Peace in another episode. So I'm not going to go and do it too much today, but it was like a type of democracy or it had democratic elements to it. And uh, this was a big influence on the founding documents of the U.S. So speed round of influences for the founding documents and father. Benny Franklin, a fucking pervert himself. The guy who loved dirty women's underwear. That's I didn't make that up. That's history. Uh, I'm not going to teach you that in fucking high school. Um, he wrote in private letters and publicly stated that he was personally influenced by the Iroquois. And it's no surprise that Benjamin Franklin was influenced by the Iroquois because in the 1740s, the Iroquois were telling the colonists that the colonists should form together into a confederation like the Iroquois have. You're going to hear more about that in an episode that I do on this in the future. And then in the 1750s, when the Albany Conference happened, which was an attempt by uh, Great Britain, and there was discussion of making a larger uh, union, except it would have the uh, Great Britain controlling it and not the colonists themselves. Uh, there were actually 200 Iroquoian people present, which you know implies that since they were brought to a major uh, diplomatic event, that they were not only viewed as uh, contemporaries, but that their influence and their opinions were valued. I think that's fair to say. The Albany Conference then influences the Articles of Confederation, which were obviously the, the, the first founding documents in the United States, which is a huge deal. And then after the Articles of Confederation, we have the Constitution. And when John Adams wrote an essay defending the Constitution, he cited the Haudenosaunee multiple times. So John Adams wrote this essay, but then Madison specifically wrote down that this book, which was influenced by the Haudenosaunee, was very influential amongst other founding fathers, and I assume including Madison himself. And Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1782 
that American Indians in the East live in, living in small societies never submitted themselves to any laws, to any coercive power, or any shadow of government. Some high praise from like the king of American liberty himself. Like, where, where else does living in small society, like, what, what else does living in small societies remind you of who are not bothered by government? I mean, that's Thomas Jefferson's human farmer idea. A nation of people that are spread out and live as human farmers in the sense that they own their own land and they, they're not, um, they're not, they don't submit to anyone. What a great fucking idea that is. And that's not the way that we went, unfortunately. We went the fucking other way. So those are some quick examples, but we're going to do a little bit more of a deep dive now to go deeper than the ideas of the founding fathers. We're going to go all the way back to the enlightenment, which you learned about in high school if you're an American. But if you don't remember it or you were stoned in the back of the class, I'm going to do a quick recap. These are the ideas of people like Locke, Rousseau, Montesquieu, and Hobbes, my least favorite one, fuck that guy. Um, they were the ideas that inspire the American Revolution, the French Revolution, general ideas of freedom in the West, and they're the backbone of the modern liberal democracy, what, what we have today. Um, and uh, closer to what they had more in the 19th and 20th century. Um, but more importantly for what we're doing today is what led up to the Enlightenment. And when does the Enlightenment start? And it starts in about the 17th century. And this is after a few centuries of contact with North America. Um, so, like, the question would be, like, why doesn't the Enlightenment happen in the 13th or the 11th century? And, uh, you know, obviously correlation is not causation, but there is a relationship between the changes that occur when 1492, when East and West meet and there begins a cultural uh, exchange. Um, that there is a possibility that Native American ideas did influence the Enlightenment. Um, so what was going on during uh, the, the time leading up to the Enlightenment? And I, I'm going to use an example here that might not seem like it makes sense at first, but bear with me. So one thing that was happening in the United States is that a lot of white people are fleeing to join the Native American. Okay, so, so people are leaving settler colonial society and they're joining Native American tribes. And they're just doing Native American shit. They're just, you know, running around doing whatever specific tribe in the area does. Um, Benjamin Franklin wrote in 1753, when an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language and habituated to our customs, yet if he goes to see his relations and makes one Indian ramble with them, don't know what the fuck that means, there is no persuading him ever to return. So Benjamin Franklin himself is saying that if they try to raise a Native American kid in white society, um, as soon as he goes and meets up with any Indians, he just fucking leaves and joins them. It must be pretty compelling life, right? Um, 1782, some guy, Hector de Crevacoar, didn't pronounce it right, but it's French, so I don't give a shit. Um, thousands of Europeans are Indians, and we have no examples of even one of those Aborigines having, from choice, become European. So what he's saying is that there are thousands of examples of white people joining the Native Americans, but there's no examples of the reverse. Um, he could have been wrong, but like I couldn't find an example of the reverse. And I, I found there are a lot of examples of white people. I mean, Benjamin Franklin is fucking talking about it. There's got to be enough of them, right? Um, so what does this illustrate to you? Because to me, uh, to me, one thing that it illustrates is that there is a big understanding between these two cultures. This is one way that it illustrates that. But a lot of people today 
think that, you know, the the European colonists, they were they were each individually hell bent on genociding the Native Americans. And that's not really what was happening. I mean, overall, yes, there's there's multiple genocides going on on multiple different peoples. But there is still a lot of interaction of individuals that was not based on violence at all. It was based. Uh, actually, there were a lot of even between the people that were at war with each other. When there weren't periods of war, there was period of cooperation and, and trade. And uh, there's a long history of that. But, you know, for for somebody especially consider maybe somebody who's at the bottom rungs of a class based society, you know, you, you have like indentured servants that are, are peasants in Europe. And, you know, they're not very equal at this time. Uh, obviously, there's there's the element of, of the racial stuff with with black people and Native Americans. But poor white people are treated very, very poorly. Not that things are great today with class, but back then it was a lot worse. So you can imagine that somebody at the bottom rungs of this society might be inclined to join the other society that they see as, you know, treating normal people better. Clearly, there is an understanding of thousands of white Americans that they got either through personal interaction or enough interaction with other people who had personal interaction. But really, there was a lot of personal interaction in the 17th and 18th centuries between Europeans and Native Americans. Um, they, they found either through personal interaction or through like credible knowledge that they were willing to upend their lives and join the Native Americans. And we're not talking about a few examples, we're talking about thousands. So there, there seems to be a widespread understanding of what life is like with the Native Americans. And there's enough of an understanding that people are willing to leave their culture for it. They weren't running to Native American tribes out of ignorance. They understood intimately what was going on. So a very important part of this argument is that when two cultures interact, they change each other. In the cultural change between Eurasia and the Americas, Europeans get corn and tomatoes and potatoes and turkeys, but you think they didn't get any ideas? Why not? The Europeans in New England used Algonquin-style canoes. And the Algonquin canoes were altered when Europeans showed up using some European methods. There's exchange going both ways of cultural ideas. There's so many examples in history of cultures using examples of other cultures and adapting them to their own needs and their own culture. But let's talk about a specific example of uh, one of these texts. So uh, Rousseau, one of the main ones. Um, he said that there was a time when human beings were equal and that something then happened to change this situation. Now, that is a fucking odd thing for somebody in the 18th century who lives in France, one of the most authoritarian times in world history, where they, the king of France is literally a sun king, like he's the king of the Aztecs and he's on the top of a freaking pyramid. Literally same title, sun king, Aztecs and 18th century French. Um... This guy living in one of the most oppressive times in world history just decides that there's this idea that humans were equal at one point when they never were in his own society and not even close. Gen Z kids would call that cat. That's cat. That's bullshit. I call it bullshit. They call it cat. You just finally decided to recognize freedom when he had no examples of it. Or maybe he was influenced a little bit by the ideas of egalitarianism amongst Native Americans. So then the idea is that Benjamin Franklin knew about this situation where natives are not joining white society, but white people are joining um, native society in their thousands. Benjamin Franklin knows about this, but Rousseau, one of the most informed and um, like, he's one of the biggest 
thinkers of the Enlightenment. He wrote a lot. He was like a top-notch um, intellectual at his time. And then, you know, he did start chopping people's heads off. But, you know, he was a very respected thinker for a long time. To think he wasn't aware of this situation or aware of the ideas of Native Americans is like, he must have been. He must have been at least somewhat aware. People were aware in English society. They were aware intimately with it, enough to leave their own culture and join it. So why would Rousseau not at least know about this, especially knowing how influential the American Revolution was to the French Revolution and the ties between the, the intellectuals and the statesmen of those countries. I mean, Benjamin Franklin was in France for most of the revolution, most of our revolution, not theirs. Okay, so these quotes are from uh, Candy Ronk, who's the Iroquois leader, um, who had experience including a visit to France. And he... Um, and Candy Ronk talked to this guy, Louis Armand, Baron de La Honton, was a somewhat impoverished French aristocrat who traveled extensively as a young man in the Great Lakes regions that are now Canada. That's where the Iroquois live, even still today. Um, Canada, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. He wrote a multi-volume memoir of his travels, the second volume of which contained his recollections of a long conversation Lahontan, Lahontan had with a Huron chief named Candy Ronk. Um, Lahontan's discussion with Candy Ronk, whom he calls Adario. Okay. So Lahontan announces his wish to educate the Indian about Christianity to save his soul because the Huron have no religion. And Adario, this is Candy Ronk, replies, What? Are you mad? Do you believe we are void of religion after you have dwelt so long among us? If your religion differs from ours, it does not follow that we have none at all. You know that I have been in France, New York, and Quebec since I studied the customs and doctrines of the English and the French. The Jesuits allege that out of five or six hundred sorts of religions, there's only one that is good in the true religion, and that's their own. This is their allegiance, but when they have said all, they cannot offer any proof of it. So they uh, and cannot offer any proof of it after saying it's the one true religion. That saying they can't offer any proof really, it's, it, that's really the idea of needing to use reason to convince people. So if you, where's the proof is a question that somebody who believes in like objective thinking is going to ask. For these 50 years, the governors of Canada have still alleged that we are subjects to the laws of their great captain, that's the king. Uh, we content ourselves in denying all manner of dependence, accepting that upon in the great spirit, like God, basically, as being born free and joint brethren who are all equally masters. Free and joint brethren that are all equally masters. That is an idea of equality right there. Whereas you are all slaves to one man, the king. Pray tell me what authority or right is the pretended superiority of your great captain grounded upon? Did we ever sell ourselves out to that great captain? Were we ever in France to look after you? Tis you that come hither to find out, to find out us. Who gave you all the countries that you now inhabit? By what right do you possess them? They always belonged to the Algonquins before. In earnest, my dear brother, I'm sorry for you from the bottom of my soul. Take my advice and turn Huron, for I see plainly a vast difference between your condition and mine. So he's telling him like, hey man, your stuff sucks. Basically, he calls him a slave because he says everyone's a slave to the king. And he's French, so he's a slave to the king. He's like, why Why does he think he's better than us? We never sold ourselves to him. Again, it, he argues with reason. This is probably my favorite one. 
I am master of my own body. I have the absolute disposal of myself. I do what I please. I am the first and last of my nation. I fear no man and I depend only upon the great spirit. Whereas your body as well as your soul are doomed to a dependence upon your great captain, the king. Your viceroy disposes of you. You had not the liberty of doing what you had a mind to. You're afraid of robbers, false witnesses, assassins, and you depended on and you depended upon an infinity of persons whose places have raised them above you. Is it true or not? Are these things either improbable or invisible? Ah, oh, my dear brother, you see plainly that I am in the right of it, and yet you choose rather to be a French slave than a free Huron. So he, he tells him, hey, I'm I'm winning this argument. I'm using reason and logic. Like I'm fucking Huron Ben Shapiro and I'm winning it. So like, but why are you still choosing to be a slave? Well, he literally calls him a slave now rather than a free Huron. Why are you a French slave? Well, Hanton insists that the French laws are just and reasonable. I protest. I don't understand one word of what you have said, for I know the contrary of what you say to be true. And those who informed me so of the judges are men of undisputed honor and sense. Honor and sense, that's what he uses to, um, to praise somebody. He says they're, they have sense. Again, it's coming back to him making arguments. But if nobody had given me any such information, I am not so dull-pated as not to see with my own eyes and injustices of your laws and your judges. Remember, this guy went to France. I'll tell you one thing, my dear brother. I was a going one day from Paris to Versailles and about halfway, I met a boy, I don't know what the fuck that is, that I, a boy that was going to be whipped for having taken partridges and hares with traps. Between Rochelle and Paris, I saw another that was condemned to the galleys, means being a slave on a ship, really sucks. You just row till you die, um, for having a little bag of salt about him. These poor men were punished by your unjust laws for endeavoring to get sustenance to their families. In earnest, we should have a fine time of it if we offered to punish one of our brethren for killing a hare or a partridge. And what he's saying, again, he's making a reasoned argument that he is free and people in his country, his, his people are free. And like, yeah, you're allowed to go get a rabbit or a, a chicken, a partridge, whatever. Um, you're allowed to do that. Because, and it's ridiculous. Like he says it would be a joke if they wanted to punish somebody for that. Lahontan says he regrets the false and prejudicial opinions Adario holds about the French. The Indian says, pray hear me, my dear brother. I speak calmly and without passion. The more I repent, calmly without passion. Again, it's, it's all about reason. And he's arguing specifically that it's about reason. This is very important to him, it seems. The French and Huron also differ in their ideas about the rights of women. My brother, I come to visit you and am accompanied by my daughter, who is about to marry against my will. She has a mind to it, and that is enough in our country. For if I pretend to marry her against her will, she quickly return upon me. What do you think, father? Am I your slave? Shall not I enjoy my liberty? Must I for your fancy marry a man I do not care for? How can I endure a husband that buys my body of my father? And how can I have an affection for the children of a man I cannot love? Thus, dear brother, would my girl answer me. So that's what Candy Ronk said. Um, so again, women, so this is rested upon like what the woman wants. If she doesn't want to marry a guy, she doesn't have to. And it seems like it's implied in this society that people have the freedom to choose what they want to. And it even applies to women. 
which is something that's not true of European society at the time. The key to this to me is that most Eastern Native Americans are led by big men. Um, the Iroquois had their own, you know, type of uh, leadership. They had their own government that was that was more sophisticated than this. Big men are leaders who just lead because people choose to follow them. They have to convince people to follow them. It's it's entirely based on people's willingness to follow them because people can leave if they want to, but they're going to stay if they believe in the ability of that leader to lead. Um, that's a system of governments that is completely voluntary. It's not based on social institutions like those in Europe where someone is able to rule over someone else based on their position in a social institution and essentially at the threat of violence. What skills and what type of culture would be promoted by a government system where people just choose to follow the leader that they like the most. I mean, that's ultimate freedom. If you don't like the leader, you can go join someone else. And you actually can because as long as someone will take you, which they probably will because people moved between groups and, and sachems, big men all the time, it was a normal thing. Big men dropped in, in prominence, they gained in providence, prominence, but it's always based on people's willingness to follow them. It wasn't based on coercion. Like it always is for uh, official social institutions. It's based on coercion and threat of violence. And there's something very free about that. It's, it's extremely free. Thanks for listening. I hope I convinced you that there's at least a little bit of evidence that the Native Americans did influence the Founding Fathers. Now, if you haven't heard of any of these things before, which seem pretty significant, I mean, ask yourself why you haven't heard of it before. If you have heard of it, let me know in the Discord where you heard about it, and let's have a discussion. Let me know any thoughts you have in the Discord. The link is in the description.